Our reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 24, and we're reading verses 13 to 35. These can be found on page 1061 in the Bibles in the pews. So that's Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, sorry, this, yeah, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen an, a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, he acted, Jesus acted as if he were, go, were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. I wonder how you spent your Easter afternoon, whether it's involved lamb and lots of food, perhaps quite a quantity of chocolate, perhaps you've had some fresh air as well. Those are all things that make my life to this evening quite a lot harder, so have a shifty look to the person sitting next to you and give them a, uh, a tactical poke if they look like they're falling asleep at any point this evening. Let me pray as we start together. Father God, we thank you so much that your word is captivating, that your word is life. 
even in death. We thank you so much that we can celebrate that wonderful truth today. Help us now as we engage with your word to take these truths uh, into our own hearts as we process them in our minds. We ask this in your name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard anything like this before. Why do you still read the Bible? Do you still actually go to church? Do you seriously believe what the Bible says? As in what it says word for word? You don't really think that Jesus actually existed, do you? Well, those are some questions that I've had asked before, and I'm sure some of you have had those questions directed at you in the past. And when we're questioned in that way, how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel? Well, when you're in the comfort of your own home, and you're sat on the sofa watching TV, and you're watching your favourite comedy show, I don't know what that would be for you, but the comedy panel, well, they start to take the mick out of Christians in some way. In that moment, how does it make you feel? Or that programme where the vicar is the lonely old man and the church is made up of five people. I'm sure you can think of one of the many that are out there, those five slightly weird people. How does that make us feel when Christianity is portrayed in that kind of way? If you're anything like me, then you'll be left feeling quite small, quite stupid, rather outdated, perhaps a little bit ridiculous. And if we're really being honest with ourselves, and we would recognise that in those moments we're quite often embarrassed to be a Christian. And perhaps in our worst moments, when we're stumbling over our words for a response, when our cheeks are, are burning, we begin to wonder, why do I actually read the Bible? Why do I bother going to church? Do I actually believe that Jesus once lived? died? Do I seriously believe that he rose from the dead? Do I need to have a reality check and catch up with the vast majority of the people who live around me? In the week I came across a BBC article that revealed that in the UK 40% of those who would call themselves Christians never attend a church service. So that's almost half of all Christians never actually go to church. And that's amongst those who would identify themselves as Christians. Christians, an increasingly small group with well over half the population now stating that they have no religion. So that's half the country saying they have no religion. The other half, or less than that, saying, well, I'm a Christian, but actually I never go to church. Do you still really go to church? If so, you're seriously in the minority. And today, Easter Sunday, massive questions arise as to what we're actually celebrating. Forget the whole debacle with Cadbury's, the National Trust and Theresa May, and the use of the whole word uh, of Easter that came up fairly recently. What are we celebrating? What are we remembering? Well, in that same BBC article that I mentioned a few moments ago, it revealed that a quarter of those who would call themselves Christians don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Reverend Dr. Lorraine Kavanagh, who is part of uh, the modern church that promotes liberal Christian theology, states, uh, she said, in regards to Easter and the resurrection, I think people are being asked to believe in a way that they might have been asked to believe when they were in Sunday school. You're talking about adults here. Science and intellectual thought have progressed. So to ask an adult to believe in the resurrection simply won't do. Well, thank you, Reverend. Do you actually still believe in Jesus? Do you believe Jesus existed, rose from the dead? So the fact that you're here at church this evening, and if you've been celebrating Jesus' resurrection today, then you're seriously in the minority. And those stats and those questions and those programs make us feel antiquated, out of touch, stupid, in serious need of an updated view on life. Well, don't lose that, that sense of feeling, that sense of being seriously out of touch. Because as we turn to Luke 24, and I encourage you to have it open in front of you now, we see two of Jesus' followers in a very similar situation, feeling stupid, outdated, and incredibly sad and heartbroken. These two individuals that we see here in these verses are heading to a village called Emmaus. But whilst they're walking away from Jerusalem, their thoughts and their conversations were very much still there. Verse 14, have a look down. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And briefly, this evening, we're going to be going on a journey with these two Not so much from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but a journey from being downcast and disappointed, that'll be our first point, to recognising the resurrected, and finally, being triumphant in truth. Those are the three things that we'll see as we accompany these two individuals on their journey. Firstly then, downcast and disappointed. As they're discussing the events that had unfolded in Jerusalem, they're joined by another individual. But this is no ordinary traveller in search of some interesting small talk along the road. No, amazingly, this was Jesus himself. But unbeknown to them, as God had kept them from, from recognising who this man before them truly was. But who were these two individuals that we're journeying with this evening? Well, we know one is called Cleopas, and whilst not part of the twelve, now eleven disciples, they were part of the core group of Jesus' followers. We can see this from what they say, and looking at the phrases they use, they were clearly close to Jesus and his disciples. The way that Luke records this conversation between undercover Jesus, if you like, and two of his followers is so real. It seems so real, doesn't it? So easy to picture. Jesus asks them, what are you talking about in their conversation? And they stop. We're told they stand still. They can't believe that this man before them doesn't know, doesn't know what has taken place. Have you been living under a rock? If you were to find yourself in London and perhaps on a bus or on the tube, 
and you tune into the conversation of the people sitting next to you, they're discussing the recent attack on Westminster Bridge, and you lean across and say, excuse me, but what are you talking about? You can imagine what the response would be. Haven't you heard? Haven't you switched on the TV? Turned on the radio? Heard it in conversation? Seen it with your own eyes? It's been absolutely everywhere. For these two followers of Jesus, that's what their situation is like. The whole of Jerusalem has been in uproar. From massive crowds celebrating Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem to angry mobs heckling him at his public execution. The whole city was buzzing with the recent events. And at the centre of it all was this man, Jesus. And so they understandably asked this traveller, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Much to their confusion there and their amazement, he asks, what things? And so they explain, and we can picture the pain in their faces, the hurt in their voices as they do so. Jesus of Nazareth, he, he is, was a prophet, powerful in what he said and what he did before the people and before God. But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. He's dead. The powerful prophet, the trusted teacher, the much-loved master, he's gone. For all they know, at this time, this blow that they've had to their hopes when it was a terminal one, for these disciples, hope had been buried in the tomb. In verse 21, we see that they had hoped that this great prophet would redeem Israel. And we've seen, up in, the, we've seen in the build-up to the cross that many of Jesus' followers were looking for a Messiah, a king who would literally and physically redeem Israel, kicking out the Romans and all of their military forces occupying Israel and making them an independent power once more, a sovereign state. That's what they had been hoping for, a glorious restoration of Israel under a glorious king. But you can't defy an empire if you're dead. You can't redeem a nation and restore its glory from the inside of a tomb. And so these two men are bitterly disappointed, disillusioned, downcast. But they haven't quite finished catching up this stranger with the news of the recent events. It's the third day since all this took place, since the one in whom they'd pinned all their hopes on had allowed himself to be captured, tried, killed and buried. But, verse 22, in addition to all this, they say, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. The disciple Thomas gets all the press as a doubter. Doubting Thomas, we all know the title. 
But what we see here is that he was just one among many of Jesus' disciples, of his followers, who doubted that Jesus had actually returned to life. Yes, these two men had heard the women's account. They had heard of the empty tomb that they had discovered. They had heard the same from Peter and John who went to investigate the tomb themselves. But the big underlying point still stands. Verse 24. But they did not see Jesus. They doubt that anything had truly happened to Jesus other than perhaps his dead corpse had been stolen or the women, the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb or perhaps the body had been removed by the officials. Whatever it was, they doubted and their doubt leads to despair and disillusionment. But then there's this wonderful moment in our passage. The man before them, listening to all of their doubts, all of their disappointments, is of course Jesus himself. And, as, uh, and he says to them, how foolish you are, how foolish you are. And this brings us on to our second point, recognising the resurrected. How foolish you are, Jesus says, but not because they didn't recognise the man standing in front of them. No, God had kept them from recognising him. They're foolish because they hadn't listened to God's word. They had the scriptures, the Old Testament to me and you, but had read them without truly understanding. They had heard the readings, but never truly listened. How slow they had been to believe all the prophets had spoken, says Jesus. If you've been coming to the evening services here this past term, then you will have heard uh, from one of those prophets and what he spoke about. We've been going through Isaiah and hearing all about God's servant in the servant songs. Jesus says to these two, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In the most well-known of those servant songs, in Isaiah 53, we're told of the great suffering of God's servant, God's king. We're told of the suffering the Messiah would go through. In Isaiah 53 we read, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So what Jesus is explaining to his downcast followers here is that it should never have been a surprise that the promised king would suffer, would die in this horrific way, crucified on a cross. It wasn't a surprise to God. No, he had promised it 750 years before. This had always been the plan. His promise being fulfilled was seen at the cross. But it wasn't just the prophet Isaiah who pointed to Jesus. No, it's the whole of the Old Testament. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What a an amazing conversation that must have been. I mean, I don't know how long this walk was, but I imagine it left these two completely changed forever. 
It revolutionized their understanding of Scripture and who Jesus was. And I wonder if that's how we view the Old Testament. When you hear that the talk is going to be taken from Genesis, when we hear that we're going to be looking at Jeremiah in the summer term ahead of us, when you hear that the Rooted Youth Conference is going to be looking at Haggai, when in your personal quiet times in the morning you come across the law of Leviticus or the history in Kings, how do you feel? Excited? Probably not. More often than not, we might dread it a little bit. It's long, it's lots of details about kings and cities and how old people were. It's hard to understand and even harder to explain to people if we have visitors with us at church. We just really hope we don't bring a non-Christian to church that's on a week when we're diving into Deuteronomy, for example. And yet from this conversation, we see that this kind of thinking is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Because every book, every prophecy, psalm, proverb, every law, every king, every page in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. We're going to show a video in a moment. And I've actually had saved on my laptop a tab to this this video. And I wanted to show it for ages. And now that I'm finally preaching on Luke 24, I I get to show it to you. So this uh, video that I'm about to show is based on a talk by Tim Keller, unsurprisingly. And it captures perfectly what we see going on here in this passage. It's called True and Better. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. 
There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover land, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. I wonder, is that how you view the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a series of amazing signposts that all point us to Jesus. What a conversation this was. Might need to stop the video. There we go. <laughs> we could watch it again, it's that good. What a conversation this was, though, between Jesus and these two men. One eye opener. What a life changer and clear past and friend definitely haven't had enough. They insist that this fellow traveller, that he stays with them. In a com- if, a, uh, if a conversation with a stranger wasn't un-British enough, well, they now spontaneously offer him hospitality. It's almost impossible to imagine. And as they're eating together, the penny finally drops. As Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. As he repeats the actions that he took on that fateful night at Passover, they recognise who he truly is. It's as the nail-pierced hands break the bread and thank God for it that they recognise the resurrected. Jesus then disappears from their sight, but these two, They can at last think back and recognise that their hearts burned within them as Jesus talked with them on the road. What an expression that is, I love it. It's it's great, isn't it? It captures exactly what's going on here. Their hearts burned within them. It wasn't that they'd had too many Easter eggs, they didn't need a a Gaviscon or a cheeky Rennie. No, they'd had the scriptures opened up to them by the resurrected king and their hearts burned. Is that how we feel about scripture? When we're having God's word opened up to us, do our hearts burn with excitement, wonder and thankfulness? It wasn't a miracle that caused this reaction, it wasn't a big epic event or music gig with smoke and flashing lights, it was God's word opened explained and applied. Recognise the wonder of God's word and the wonderful signposts that lead our hearts to burn as we meet with the risen Lord Jesus. It's through God's word that we can recognise the resurrected and like these two here, our eyes can be opened too. And this leads us on to our final point 
these two followers of Jesus were downcast and disappointed, their hopes shattered. But now in recognising their risen king, they are triumphant in truth. Triumphant in truth. I wonder how you would respond to this kind of news. How you would respond to the realisation that your king, your friend, your teacher, your Lord is not dead as you thought, but is alive. How would you respond? How do you, how do you respond to the knowledge that all hope is not lost? Well, these two get up immediately and retrace their steps. They waste no time in heading straight back to Jerusalem. They locate the 11 disciples who are assembled together, probably still feeling confused and scared. And perhaps like these two here, they were feeling, well, disappointed and downcast. Into that situation, the two followers of Jesus say these amazing words. Just three words, but they carry such weight and wonder. It is true. It is true. The rumours are no longer rumours. The gossip and hushed whispers are swept away. It is true. They tell these 11 men the good news of their meeting with Jesus, the risen, alive Jesus. It is true. You can imagine the joy and the excitement they must have felt by this incredible news. Jesus massively excelled their expectations. They were looking for a king to kick out the enemies, their enemies, the Romans. Instead, they got the king who defeated the greatest enemy, death itself. They are triumphant in truth. But how? How are they triumphant? What difference does this truth actually make? What actual difference does it make for the disciples then? And what difference does it make for us today, here on this Easter Sunday? Well, for the disciples, it changed absolutely everything. From having their hopes dashed to pieces as their Messiah lay dead in a tomb, they are now triumphant in truth, in the truth of the resurrection. They now know that Jesus, that all that Jesus promised and predicted has come true. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Saviour of the world. And they can take such confidence in those promises, knowing that he keeps them all. He keeps even the promise of defeating death. And as we look at their lives, as we look at the lives of the disciples, and the difference that this truth makes, it couldn't be more visible. Peter, from denying that he even knew Jesus three times, and carrying away in fear of the authorities. A few days later, he's now standing in front of a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, and he's able to say, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is triumphant in truth. And 3,000 people were added to heaven that day. They're saved and they're baptised. And it's not just Peter. All the disciples would go on to preach and teach and write about this, this truth. They would lead churches by it, carry it, 
to distant lands, present it to kings and rulers, go to prison because of it, die sharing it. The resurrection made all the difference. It is true. The disciples lived and died by that truth, knowing that their risen Lord and Saviour would welcome them into the perfect world that he had gone to prepare for them. But what difference does it make to me and you here this evening, to us here and now? When we're faced with those questions that we thought about at the beginning, and think about those stats that show we really are in the minority in this, in this country, it's so easy to feel stupid and small and to begin wonder if Christianity, church, cipher, connect, is all just a waste of time. Our big problem is that so many of us have a plastic Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. The view of Jesus that we get from our half-remembered RE lessons and Christmas Day services that we might occasionally attend. The blue-eyed baby in a manger. The white guy with a beard holding a lamb on the front of those Easter cards that you probably got from your nan. That's our big problem. That so many of us have a plastic Jesus. Well, the Gospel writer Luke here wants us, wants his readers, wants us here this evening to burn our plastic Jesus. Get rid of the small fiction we've created and see here the real, living, breathing man. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then consign Jesus to history as a much mistaken rabbi. But if the resurrection did happen, then everything has to change. Everything changes. Consider for yourself the real person. Consider the evidence that is on offer here. Consider the signposts of scripture, those hundreds and thousands of years ago, those promises that were answered and fulfilled in his life, in the life of Jesus. Consider the reality of the resurrection. When our view of Jesus isn't based on popular holidays and cheap cards, but rather on eyewitness testimonies, then we will begin to see Jesus for who he truly is, as the Son of God, as the King over all things, as the one who defeated even death. When that's our understanding, our view of Jesus, then those questions, those trials that we might face as Christians, the pull and desire to to give it all up, to follow the masses, they begin to fall away. Why do you read the Bible? Well, looking at these eyewitness accounts, how could I not read and reread these life-changing truths? As we look at the promises of the Old Testament, we can recognise the resurrected. Why wouldn't you look at God's word? Do you still actually go to church? Why? Who are you praying to? Why don't you go there? Or why don't you say those things, do those things? If Jesus is king over all things, including death, then how could I do anything but live my life him, letting him shape my priorities, my dreams, where I spend my time and what I want to do with my time. It is true. The resurrection changes everything. Has it changed you? 
Have you gone from disappointment to triumph? Have you recognised the resurrected and all that he has done for you? Let's pray. It is true. Father God, we thank you so much for that wonderful, for that freeing truth that your son did live, that he did die, and wonderfully he did rise again. He defeated even death. And because of that, Father God, we can be confident that you are our king, that you are our Lord, and that one day you will come back again. And we can also be confident that when we face death, that we too will be raised with you. We too will have our own resurrection because you, as our king, have defeated even death. Help this truth to shape the way we think, the way we live, the way we speak in the weeks to come. Father God, we thank you for this truth. Amen.